Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Uh, I'm pleased to say that our guest uh, this week is Helen O'Hara, a colleague, uh, film journalist and author of the new book, uh, Ho- uh, Women vs. Hollywood, The Rise and Fall of Women in Film. Helen, welcome to the podcast. This is your first time on the Kermode on Film podcast. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having I, me. I can't believe it's taken us two years to have you on. <laughs> um, so this, ex- give me a, a, a basic outline of what Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film is about. It's a sort of, uh, sounds too ambitious, past, present and future of women in Hollywood. So I wanted to look at where we are now and how we got here a little bit. And that took me right back to the silent era, which I was just kind of interested in, to look at the fact that there were women directing and producing and owning their own studios at that point and what happened and how film became quite as male-dominated as it has been for And inventing the boom microphone. And inventing the boom mic, yeah. Yeah, Dorothy Arzner there. So, uh, so yeah, and, you know... arguably at least the first person to make a narrative film as opposed to a kind of documentary was Alice Guy. There's, there's dispute. I'm not saying it as fact, but it's, she's, she's one of the first. So, you know, but we haven't heard of her. We don't talk about her in the same way that we talk about, you know, the Lumiere brothers and Gaumont and, and all the other early pioneers. So at the very beginning of the book, there is a kind of, you know, a sort of mission statement in the introduction, mm. which begins by saying that essentially Hollywood is a rigged game. And it says, the stories we tell reflect what we value, who we empathise with, how we see the world. Maybe if our films were more egalitarian, our world would be too. If films showed women's stories mattering as much as men's, maybe that would be true in real life too. So this is a very bold claim at the beginning of the book, which is that if you change the makeup of the movies, you actually affect the real world. Tell me something about that. I, I genuinely do kind of believe this. I mean, you know, obviously this is stating my case slightly strongly, strongly maybe, but I do think that there is, I think that the stories we tell shape us. I think we're seeing, for example, right now in the world, a generation shaped by Harry Potter um, acting on the on the values that they've gained from those books. And you will literally see this referenced again and again online in us from a certain generation of people. I think there's a lot of us that were raised on Star Wars and we see those things play out and we compare it to Star Wars and that's our kind of lens or our prism for for seeing the real world. And I just think that the stories we tell definitely reflect our values as a society, but I do think that they shape them as well. I do think that there's an element of give and take and that when we start showing again and again in stories that, you know, women are one fifth of every team of hero action heroes or whatever, and women are 30% of speaking characters, um, 
that seems to be reflected across society as well. And in terms of, you know, women on company boards and things like that, we can't get past that 30% level. And I wonder if maybe if we start doing it in storytelling and we start doing it in our cultural kind of creative creative outlets, maybe that would start to kind of bleed back into the real world. And this is also the theory of the Gina Davis Institute on gender and media. That's what they've been trying to do. They've been trying to even up representation in children's cartoons because they think if they do that, if kids grow up from day one, seeing sort of 50-50 gender balance, different races, different cultures, different you know disabilities and so on portrayed, that when they get into the real world, if that's not what they see in the working environment or whatever else, they will register that something's wrong. And I think that's what our generation maybe doesn't always register that there's a problem. Okay, so this is an extension of the if they can see it, they can be it uh, philosophy. Uh, The book, as you said, traces it back to the beginning of cinema in which there are all these um, actually, you know, very, very important uh, female pioneers. You argue that they were basically driven out of business on purpose, that there was a kind of that there was an ethos behind it. And not I I don't quite say on purpose, but I do think that there was because I I don't think it's entirely conscious. But I think what happened is that as film became a business and an industry, as opposed to just kind of an experiment and a lark, it became sort of untenable for there to be senior women in it. Like it it came to seem weird because this is now a business, it's an industry, it's millions of dollars and there are women doing it. Like at that point, women barely had the vote. Um, you know, at the time that most of them were forced mm-hmm. out. So it must have seemed quite odd, actually, to be taking orders from a woman on a film set. So I'm, I don't think it was like a conscious, deliberate plot by the early studio heads or, or you know, some ca- shadowy cabal somewhere. But I do think they just came to see it as, well, no, this is weird. It makes us look non-professional to have all these girls doing stuff. And I think as it became more professionalised and more industrialised, they couldn't understand, they couldn't see a path to having women in senior roles. Which is an extraordinary thing because, I mean, you know, whether whether one calls it conscious or not, it is an industry reconfiguring itself in order mm-hmm. in order to do what it thinks it, that the industry needs to do to be taken seriously in yeah. the world. But that that is, and I, I, I mean, if, I think it's true, it is a deliberate, whether conscious or not, move on the part of the industry to make it look like every other industry yeah. on earth. I suppose that's true. And and it, and it is, again, it's the money men coming in. You know, it's not even the studio bosses acting as, you know, some of them were definitely sexist and racist and all the rest, but that's not them acting on those beliefs. It's them trying to keep the money men in New York happy because once big money comes into any industry, we see this happening again. And again, we see it now with uh, startups. It's much, much easier to get these billion dollar startup loans from angel investors if you're a team of, you know, gung-ho guys than if you're a team of women. And that has been reported you know, loads in the past couple of decades. There's a, a section that you quote um, uh, from uh, from Amara Santi, who I'm a big fan of, and uh, I know Amara's talked about this before, about Amara's first directing assignment. And this is in the conversation about, you know, women becoming directors. And Amara says that essentially what she was told was, if this script is going to happen, it's going to happen with you directing it. Yeah. And you quote her as saying, all I thought was, why on earth would I try to direct this film and ruin it? It's the best piece of work I've ever written, and I need to entrust it into the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. In my mind at the time, that certainly wasn't me. And you then juxtapose that with this lovely thing from Barbara Streisand, talking about the fact that she she decided to direct Yentl, because basically... Um, 
you know, her, her partner then had said, well, maybe I should direct it. And she thought, well, hang about a minute. If he can direct it, why can't I? What does that tell you about the way in which the industry shuts down people's perceptions of what they can or should be doing? Yeah, I mean, that, that is exactly a case of women not seeing themselves uh, in a certain role and therefore assuming that it wasn't a possibility, I think. And what's interesting, actually, is is Amma said that a, a little while ago um, about that role. And she, she sort of slightly pulled back from it when I spoke to her again and said, you know what, I did... I did grow up obsessed actually with Yentl. And I, so I was aware of women directing and I think somewhere in my mind, I was thinking about that. So she has kind of thought, you know what, in retrospect, there must've been something in me that, that saw this as a possibility, but it wasn't her th- first thought. And, and I do think there is that hesitance in some women just because they assume it's close to them. And I think, um, I think maybe Andrea Arnold said the same thing um, in one of her interviews that, you just didn't assume it was a, it was a possibility, and for many many years they were right. There's there's a statistic that I came across that absolutely blew my mind, which was that I think between forty nine and seventy nine, not point not one nine percent of films were directed by women. Studio Hollywood films, um, and that's not good. So at least we've come some way, you know. But but it's still I think that's one of the last great barriers to women in Hollywood is particularly things like directing cinematography, these roles where we kind of deify the creative great man. And we don't seem to be willing to give women the same status, even the ones like, you know, a Jane Campion or an Agnes Varda, they don't seem to get the big uplift in terms of stature and power and the power to attract major stars and the power to attract major money that the men get maybe for doing the same kind of thing she was born into a time when the world of study belonged only to men there's not a morning i begin without a thousand questions running through my mind gentle for the thousandth time men and women have different different obligations obligations. i know but don't ask why But Yentl couldn't help herself. Her desire to learn was so great that to satisfy herself inside, she pretended to be a man outside. You also recount a story um, that Sherry Lansing tells about when Sherry Lansing, you know, became uh, head of production, that she was basically, she was uh, elevated to a position that someone else, a a male colleague who was similarly elevated, got more money than she did. And when she asked why, she was told, well, he's got a family and kids. And she said, and the worst thing is, I went, oh, okay. Now, I've met Sherry Lansing on uh, numerous occasions. And the idea of Sherry Lansing going, okay seems absolutely jaw-dropping. I yeah. mean, again, that speaks a lot about the waters in which she is swimming. That's exactly it. And I think both she and Don Steele, the other sort of pioneer at the at the executive level, or the you know really, really successful one in those early days of the 1970s and 1980s we're talking about now, um, they had to put up with so much that they couldn't they couldn't sort of go out there and be feminists. You know, they couldn't go out there and kind of fight the fight. And, you know, Sherry talks, phrases it as burning her bra, but they couldn't do that because it was either get ahead or make a fuss about this stuff. 
and they chose to get ahead and and fight the fight that way. And I, I think they were right. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody who did make a fuss about this stuff did get ahead. So, you know, you have to swallow the microaggressions and probably macroaggressions and just kind of go with it and fight for the next promotion that's going to give you more money than the guy who got promoted over you last time. I'll tell you my my Sherry Lansing story because yes, I've, I've, repi- I've, I've repeated this many times. But the first time I ever met Sherry Lansing was uh, through um, William Friedkin, of, of who, of with whom I've done a lot of work. And back in 1997 um, or 98, whenever it was, late 90s, I was in Hollywood doing something with Billy, and Billy said do you want to come and have a, come and eat? And I thought, well, yeah, do I want to go? Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> and of course, being being foolish and an idiot, I didn't think any of this through. And I, we started talking about Titanic and I, and I had this whole thing about what was wrong with Titanic, that, you know, that it isn't a night to remember. And the whole thing about night to remember is that it's about Britishness in crisis and Titanic is about this, that and the other. Right? And Billy sat there and he listened to this. And then he said, oh, Sherry's coming. And because I just didn't, my, I just didn't <laughs> think, th- think anything through. And he's, Sherry says, Sherry, this is Mark Kermode, a journalist from, you know, hello, how'd you do, blah, blah. He said, Mark was telling me a very interesting, tell Sherry, <laughs> tell Sherry what you just told me about Titanic. And oh, I, this, was, this is a while ago now, but I mean, I'm, you you know, I'm stupid now, but I was stupider then. And I went, well, the problem with the problem with Titanic, Sherry Lansing, my brain doesn't do this. The problem with Titanic is that it's not a night to remember and that it's not about Britishness in crisis. It's about whether or not Leonardo DiCaprio ends up with Kate Winslet. And that's the problem with Titanic. And there was this pause and <laughs> Sherry Lansing with absolute perfect comic timing and went, and the problem with you is that you are not a teenage girl. <laughs> and it was a really interesting thing because on the one hand she was being funny on the other hand yeah because yeah. titanic as we now know went on to be the biggest selling movie of all time until avatar outsold it this leads me into something else that your book covers uh, later on which is mm. to do with film criticism and you talk about um how film criticism is equally kind of skewed towards white men of which mm-hmm. i'm you know clearly one um I think that thing that Sherry, Sherry Lansing said back then has stuck with me ever since. Mm. And it, it, it was one of the, one of the defining moments of realizing, oh yeah, of course. I, and I have, I think, you know, I have tried to take it on board, but it is true, isn't it? Statistically, that despite the Pauline Kales, Dillis Powell's, yeah. all the great writers, there is still a, a huge inconsistency in the makeup of film criticism. Yeah, it's about two thirds men, uh, almost all white. I mean, you you and I both know it from the screenings we go to. There's a sort of scattering of of non-white faces. Um, There tend to be more women who are invited or who turn up to the maybe rom-coms. You know, you'll suddenly see the women's magazines getting several invites and and sending people along. But generally speaking, it's at least two thirds male most of the time. And look, you know, I, I, no disrespect genuinely to any of my colleagues, I think there was a real effort to put themselves in other people's shoes and, and see which which audiences this is made for and this kind of thing. But I feel like overall, like if we look at the canon, quote unquote, the canon of films that we're supposed to have seen, they're a very male heavy bunch. And if we look at the films that are considered kind of important, they deal with traditionally male spheres a lot of the time. And if we look at the films that are dismissed as fluff and garbage and everything else, they're often you know, not any worse, I don't think, but they're aimed at especially teenage girls. And I, I think teenage girls especially are the the most kind of disrespected 
group of film goers, you know, um, and some of those films are really good. I will stand up for stuff like She's the Man. I think Amanda Bynes had a really, really good, you know, early noughties run of genuinely good comedies. They're silly and they're puerile, but they're no sillier or more puerile than a, a Will Ferrell or whoever else, you know, but we don't talk about those kind of films with as much respect. And I think we're beginning to, I think things like Clueless and Mean Girls are maybe beginning to earn a little bit of, you know, a little bit of critical appreciation, but it's taken a very, very long time. And I think there is an imbalance. And then it, that's, you know, I, I put critics in that section together with awards and together with film festivals, because again, yeah. all of those, that, that kind of ecosystem all breeds against itself and, and sort of decides what is important and what is worthwhile and everything else sometimes comes with a caveat, you know, it's good for that kind of film. And look, this is a problem with genre. It's not just about, you know, gender, but, you know, we, we see this over and over again where the Oscars overlook incredible performances in horror or incredible performances in comedy. Um, but they do overlook films about women because they don't see those as being as weighty subject matter, I think, as, as the ones about men. And I think that's a whole, again, it's cultural. It's not particular to film. It's not particular to Hollywood, but it, it it does affect what gets those accolades, what gets the Oscar campaigns, what the studios spend their money on and therefore what wins at the end of the day. And then it becomes a, a reinforcing circle, you know? Do you put your money behind the female starring film when you know it might not overcome this kind of cultural bias? And where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? Well, right now my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place, you know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here at a lucky hand at poker. A very lucky hand. Mm. All life is a game of luck. Mm. A real man makes his own luck, Archie. You also mentioned in relation to that, to the, to the Sherry Lansing story, somebody saying, you are fighting this for all of us. And if you fail, we all fail. Therefore, you, ha you know, and, and somebody yeah. else saying, for, for heaven's sake, if a bloke stayed in that job for a year, you'd think they'd done a good job. Mm. Um, in relation to the film criticism thing, I mean, this is only a glimpse of it from my point of view, because I'm in the most privileged group of, um, you know, film critics. I am white, middle class, uh, you know, cis, male, heterosexual. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't have a single disadvantage going for me. Um uh, and uh, and I do think, incidentally, I'm a dinosaur. Uh, I know it's it's very funny that at the beginning of the book you say, <laughs> "I just want to point out, I don't hate all men," and you know, just and you you say a lovely thing you say, which is just 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 say to yourself, "Not all men," and then get on with your day. Which it was lovely because it reminds me of that Bill Hicks thing about took a bunch of drugs, didn't hurt anyone, got on with my day. Thank you very much. <laughs> But there is an interesting thing. I mean, I remember when I love the Twilight movies. Mm. I absolutely love the Twilight movies. I have never received so much hate mail for liking the Twilight movies as anything else. Yeah. You mentioned um, that you spoke to a bunch of female film critics who had had horrific, horrific feedback abuse. Tell me something about, is that, I mean, I just imagine that that is absolutely standard for anyone putting their head above the parapet, but it must be infinitely worse for women, certainly because the death threats, uh, mm. uh, fat shaming. Yep. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's look, I'm, all critics obviously get abuse. Um, that's fine. And to be honest, as critics, we have to accept criticism in turn. And that's that's totally OK. But there is definitely and and people have done studies on this. There is definitely a, a skew in the kind of abuse that women get compared to men. So they, they tend to get a slightly different kind of focus. There will be, you know, the death threats again. I've, I know male colleagues who have had death threats and stuff like that. 
what, what you tend to get, particularly as a woman, is this assumption that you're not competent. They, they threaten your job. They threaten to report you to someone in authority who they assume, I think, is a man. Um, they, they seem to have this there's this idea that you have to earn your place somehow. I mean, one of the specific examples I, I mentioned from my history was people telling me that I couldn't understand Ghost Rider 2 because it wasn't for me. And I mean, you said, I feel intellectually I can understand. I feel like, yeah, it. I feel like I'm up to that one. Like, you know, uh, but, you know, p- people, a lot of people being accused of being fat, whether they are or not, it doesn't matter. But that's just a thing that gets thrown at women. Um, having slept their way into a job, being sluts, uh, being frigid, doesn't matter. Again, they're interchangeable. It's just, you know, there you must be something very, wrong with you. You made a very wry observation about somebody using, you know, the, the slut as, a, as an abusive term for having not liked Joker. And you said, surely liking Joker would be the thing that that would be term sluttier. would be I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, there, there are particular fandoms that are worse than others. So so DC came up a lot. Batman particular, mm-hmm. Joker came up a lot. Yeah. Um, I've I've certainly had some run-ins with Snyder Cut fans. Look, I look forward to seeing it, but th- some I of don't. the fans are dreadful. I, 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 was, I, mean, I was talking to Kim Newman about this the other day. I, Kim, I listened we, to that, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, that thing that Kim said, you know, does anybody want four hours of Jack Snyder in their life regardless? Well, obviously some people do, I but mean, then, you know. I'm intrigued to see it. Let me let me say it that way. I'm, I'm not I'm even interested intrigued. to see it. I'm not even intrigued. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so, I'm so not interested in anyway but um, but yeah but but yeah so that's that's a, I would say a toxic fandom Joe Robinson from Vanity Fair who I spoke to the one she's had um the worst run is with she said was um uh Outlander which surprised me so Outlander oh. fans apparently very tough very very tough indeed so there are there are certain people out there who are um more what's the word more sensitive maybe than others. And of course, we all know about the Ghostbusters uh, Farrago. No, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not saying it's the greatest film ever. I'm not saying it would have had good reviews or deserved no, good reviews, but it, it got a huge amount of hate before anyone had seen it. Yeah. And um, and that was particularly noxious. And and that kind of thing, is, it's, it's, it's those kind of instinctive urges to say, you don't belong here. This is not for you. You're not allowed to have an opinion on it or certainly not allowed in, in the case of Ghostbuster to reinvent it. That's a particular kind of, uh, I didn't call this gatekeeping, but it is a kind of gatekeeping that the, the fans do, mm-hmm. that the mostly male fans do. Outlander, maybe not so much, but uh, it, it's a particular thing. And it, and it's much, much, much worse for, again, women of colour, um, queer women, LGBT women, whatever, than it would be for me, because I have almost all the same privilege as you do. Um, and I'm aware of that. So it, it, it gets much, much nastier. Uh, when they go to town on something like Joker or something like Batman v Superman. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the winner is... Well, the time has come. Catherine Bigelow! This is the first Academy Award and second nomination tonight for Catherine Bigelow. When you're talking about awards, you, you know, you mention it in the book that, you know, so for Catherine Bigelow is still the only uh, woman to win mm. an award. It's still an incredibly short number. They're even uh, nominated. Do you think that this year is going to change that? Um, I mean, are we, because you do talk about things are changing. Yeah. They are. Are they changing fast or slowly? I think they're changing quite fast. But I think there's such a long way to go that it's still not going to be a fast process. You know, we're not anywhere near 50-50. But what I think is really, really helpful right now is that we are seeing high profile female successes. And I'm talking particularly about directing here because, you know, it's one of the most visible kind of means. So we just had three nominees for the Golden Globes. I think it's entirely possible we see something similar for the Oscars. And I think it's partly because they're great films. I think it's partly because there has been more oxygen maybe given to them than there would have been in another year when maybe they would have been drowned out by other releases because I think historically the media doesn't necessarily pay as much attention to some of these stories. So something like Rocks in this country, I think came out when the cinemas were just reopened Mm -hmm. and I think benefited enormously from that because it actually got written about at length in multiple papers in a way that it maybe wouldn't have, you know, in 2019 or 2018. Um, and it deserved it, you know, no question about that, but it, it got a lot more attention because there wasn't anything else there sucking up the oxygen. So I feel like this year, if we see some wins from these female nominations, if we see actual Oscar nominations and not just Golden Globes, which are, you know... Rubbish. Rubbish, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> then that might begin to change the needle. And then, you know, 2020 was meant to be this banner year with five major blockbusters directed by women, most of those by women of colour, you know... I know some of them got delayed and some of them ended up as online releases. So we, we don't really know how Mulan or Wonder Woman would have done at the box office. But I hope that that doesn't get derailed, that that momentum doesn't kind of go away just because 2020 was the worst. One of the interesting things about doing uh, about reviewing films this year, I mean, I, mm. you know, I've been a film critic since the late 80s. Um, so like literally since a previous century. Um, and uh, this year we're doing the, the news channel film review every week and I shoot it in my kitchen, my you know, on a mobile phone. 
And something happened which was really interesting, which was because all the blockbusters went out the way, mm. we were able to concentrate. We do five or six films a week, and we were able to concentrate on other releases. And if one was trying to find a good news story about the pandemic, it would be well, you know, never really, sometimes always was the lead yeah. feature, or you know, that kind of. There was a week in which all five films that I reviewed were directed by women. But what's more important is I didn't notice. It wasn't actually until three weeks later that we noticed it had happened. And I know it's a completely artificial bubble, but it felt to me like the not noticing that it had happened was almost the most significant thing. And I did think at that point, okay, even though it's within a very specific circumstance in a playing field that has been altered by this, that is an encouraging sign. Don't worry about the sirens. I mean, but around here, we're having a washing machine fixed. It's a, it's a podcast. No one cares. Um, yeah, so it did feel like this things things are happening that weren't happening. I mean, I'm very yeah. disappointed that neither Rocks nor St. Maud appear to be in the BAFTA second round for best yeah. film, which is yeah, a, a a, just an absolutely, well, it's appalling. Well, yeah. But, but, it, but things, that did seem to me to be a good sign. I, I agree, and I think I think this is something I said in the book. I've totally forgotten what's in there or not. But like the, the, the trick, the trick will not be when exceptional women get to make films. You know, the trick will not be when another woman wins Best Director at the Oscars. The trick will be when average women get to make another film and hopefully make a better one next time. You know, because that happens with men and and. So it, it, at the moment, I think to kind of break through, we're seeing these really exceptional filmmakers, you know, like um, Rose Glass and people who are coming through. You know, I kind of want to see the okay people who make a pretty good movie get another chance because that's what's been lacking for a lot of female directors. They make one film a decade and you can't build up career momentum doing that. You can't even qualify under the old rules for membership of the directing branch of the academy. You know, you need to be working more to get better at your craft. And and that's what's been missing. Even if you have that Sundance breakthrough as a female filmmaker, until very recently, that didn't mean anything. You didn't get offered Jurassic World, you know, after your Sundance debut. You got maybe some meetings. And when you said you wanted to make your own film, then the meeting ended. Look at, you know, even somebody like Jennifer Kent with The Babadook, which was a hit, took her five years to get the money together for The Nightingale because she was determined to do that story. And, you know, I think that's where, that's why I did the chapter about the auteur theory as well, because I feel like we, we give certain men at least this status of auteurdom and we, we allow them some freedom and some money, maybe not enough and maybe not enough, but we, we give some of it to them and then they do these amazing things. But that status has been almost entirely absent from most women. My uh, partner, Linda Ruth Williams, was uh, central to the Calling the Shots project, which was counting mm. the numbers, you know, of uh, uh, women working in the film industry in the UK, um, you know, this century. And the and the numbers were, sh- I mean, shocking. I mean, genuinely, yeah. even 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 if you're away, you still think you know, the percentages three and seven and ten are kind of <sighs> high. And um, one of the things that they discovered they did a bunch of interviews and you know many years of research was that exactly as you're saying the number of women who make a film and then don't make another film either for 10 years or ever i mean in the case of amma Amma didn't direct for 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 10 years between um way of life and and bell there's a a whole decade and when asked why that was you know, a number of assumptions would come in about, you know, how a woman's life would change and how, you know, motherhood would come in or career or whatever it was. But they were all basically a way of explaining a single phenomenon, which is you get you get the one chance. And what you don't get is, and I think this is a really strong, 
is the, the opportunity to do okay. Yeah. The opportunity to be average, the opportunity to not be Sherry Lansing having to change the whole world. Look, if she stays in the job for a year, anywhere else you would have gone. And it, it is, there is a, there is a, a theme of that, isn't there? Which is the ability to be okay would mm. really be something to be celebrated. It really would. And and it's something that black filmmakers talk about as well. There was a great article in, in the New York Times, I think at the end of 2019, with six young black filmmakers who made who made a splash with their first film in the 90s. And then their second film was either interfered with by the studio so much that it was almost unrecognisable or it just flopped. And either way, you know, that was pretty much it for their big screen chances. And this this keeps happening. So this is the, the central thing that needs to change. We need to see career progression because what we see right now is, I mean, and Ama Sante's first film was well received, you know, yeah. so it's not even like it wasn't a, a good film. But women... And, and again, all minorities don't necessarily get that credit for that hit. That's why one of the things I talked about in that chapter was the people who make the first film in a franchise. If it, if it's a female director who makes the first film in a franchise, she almost certainly doesn't come back for the sequel. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with Wonder Woman, it took, what, five or six months for Patty Jenkins to sign up for the sequel. And you know that's because they tried to pay her probably the same amount as the first time instead of giving her the, the uplift that you would expect, having just mm-hmm. delivered a sort of... $800 million hit. I think that's still happening, or at least it's still a risk. And I think that's one of the things that needs to be kind of worked out. But I'm really encouraged to see somebody like Chloe Zhao go from strength to strength, for Marielle Heller to have made three films in five years, you know, yeah. for Ava DuVernay to be taking so much control of her career. I feel like certain people at least are beginning to kind of push through that barrier, but they're still having to push through. There's a story in there about... Um, Kate Shortland, Kate Shortland, who's just directed Black Widow. And after directing that, went for a meeting about another major sort of commercial film, had a really good meeting. Her agent followed up and they said, well, we didn't think she'd like to do this kind of commercial movie. And you're like, she's just made Black Widow. What does she need to do to convince you that she's open to commercial movies? You know, so there are these weird assumptions and there are these weird failings of logic and i think that's one of the things that we need to kind of unpick a little bit i tell people my sister moved out west you're a science teacher your husband he renovates houses you're thinking about moving but you're gonna wait until the interest rates go down that's not my story before i was an avenger i made mistakes of enemies. His call signs Taskmaster. He controls the Red Room. They're manipulated, fully conscious, but no choices. I should have come back for you. How many others are there? Enough. So let me ask you about something about you. Um, you have done really well in, uh, you know, in film criticism, which, as we know, is a very uh, uncertain career. I mean, I, I've almost got to the point now. People say, "How do I get into film criticism?" Part of the answer is, 
don't. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I mean, when I started, I think it was a lot easier. I was I started in the eighties. There was print journalism. There was the enemy. There was City Life. You know, you could walk into the offices of uh, magazine. You could literally walk into the offices of the NME. I mean, literally wow. walk in, and somebody would be there, and you go, uh, you'd leave with a you know with an album that you had to review, and you'd get a fiver for it. But that you know, I think it is much harder now. Although it's mm-hmm. you know access all areas with you know with the internet, it's actually much harder because everybody's voice is being heard. What do you think was the thing that made you a success in this career? Who helped you? What, what you know? What inspired you? And mm. what have you found most difficult? Um, well, I think I got really lucky. I think I, I've I've always said when you know when students come in and I'm I'm talking to people or work experience or whatever, you know I think you control that you are good. You know you can do the reading and watch the movies and practice your writing and and work on getting better and be helpful and make the tea and you know talk to people when you're in the office and all that kind of stuff. You you control all of that and you control how hard you work. But you, after that, you really need to be lucky to get into this profession. And I got super lucky. So basically, I went for a job at Empire uh, online on the website just after giving up uh, a career as a barrister. So I, I went through pupillage and and then was I was so bored, so bored. Um, so I'd just given it up. And I didn't think I'd get the job because I had no training, no experience. I hadn't done journalism at any point. I hadn't even worked on the university paper. And um, I was lucky enough, I think, that they lost my CV, but they still had my sample news articles that I'd written, which were very much in the Empire style because I read the website every day. So that got me the interview. And then I was actually the second choice for the job um, because they'd forgotten to ask me the question about what is my favourite TV show? And I had therefore not given the correct answer, which is the West Wing um, at the time. Um, so they had somebody else who they preferred to me because he had given that answer. Um, but that person had the same name as one of the people already working on the website. And uh, James, I'm, I'm just going to name names. James didn't want another James in the office. So he vetoed that person. Uh, Catherine, the then editor of Vito, James's favourite, and I was the compromise candidate. That's my stop. That's my start. So I got incredibly, incredibly lucky. And I've been incredibly lucky that the Empire team are, are generally a, a good bunch. And most of the time I've gotten on well with them. And we have, you know, I've learned a lot like James and Chris and people like that before they were kind of peers, were very much mentors and kind of talked me through it. I was also lucky that I spent two years as reviews editor, which is genuinely a really useful uh, position because I'd already been working at Empire for a little while by then, but it made my writing so much better because I had to do so many of the very short reviews, and I think it's a completely different skill set to be able yeah, to capsule boil reviews. Your, mm. Capsule reviews are the hardest thing to write. So hard, yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it, it is absolutely. It is harder to write 150 words, 250 words about a film than it is to write a thousand. 100, 100, percent and and I had to, you know, fill in so many little spaces when something dropped out at the last minute. That that was a, an immense writing class, as was you know just working on the website and always having to be able to kind of think fast. Um, but I didn't really have a a, a mentor beyond just those colleagues who sort of guided me in the right direction. Um, and I'm, I'm really, you know, if, if Terry had been there at that point, Terry White, who's the Nye editor, I would have basically just like grabbed her ankles and never let go. I mean, I just think she's incredible. Um, so it's been great to have her take over and just, I, I just think she's been so good for Empire because she is so exacting and so precise and looking at things like language, like Chris is a big football fan. I'm getting a little bit inside baseball here, but Chris is a big football fan and will 
you know, put in jokes about football in the copy, which I've always argued with because I'm like, I don't think our male readers necessarily are massive football fans. I've never seen a football match in my whole life. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I, I literally have never seen a football match in my entire life and I'm nearly 60. I mean, you've been watching movies, you know, I think it's a better use of time. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, but yeah, but also I've, I've seen football in um, like Next Goal Wins. Oh, I've, yeah, seen yeah. It, I've seen it in movies, but I've yeah. never seen it. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much my my story as well. But but you know, so things like that, Terry would just sort of pick up on and go, well, that feels just exclusionary of people, and would, you know, just she wants everybody to be kind of welcomed in, and it's just in in every sentence of the language almost, and I just think it's brilliant. So so yeah, but I have find it difficult at times because if if you have your dream job and there are bad days, there's kind of nowhere to run to mentally you know and and you don't really have a right to complain because you do have a dream job but at the same time sometimes even in this there are there are hard times and and then that can be a little bit sort of yeah you you feel a bit lost you're like well now what do i do geez no i mean my you know my mantra is i have nothing to complain about that doesn't Mm. mean i won't um (laughs) and and i you know i do all the time i'm an absolutely miserable git um but i you know i i it it is that kind of thing about even in the very worst day of your of your working life you go you are literally paid to watch movies and then write stuff about them my grandfather delivered bread door to door linda's uh you know family were coal miners Mm -hmm. it's like we're not doing anything that's actually properly difficult uh, my granda was a road builder, yeah, exactly the same. And I mean, this is why we can only really complain to each other, you know, because <laughs> anybody else would rightly laugh us out of time, and that is absolutely fine. Let me ask you one last thing. Um, I, I think that I think this is a really. I mean, you this couldn't be more timely. And I know that because of the way that books work, the idea of anything coming out being timely is almost entirely accidental. Yeah. You know, people always go, well, what a great moment for this to arrive. And you go, yeah, because that's funny, because I was kind of aiming at like last summer. I mean, I've got a book <laughs> that's now five years overdue. <laughs> I mean, I was once told this, this thing, I was once told this rule by a fellow critic who, who you know as well, but um, he said, here's the thing. If you deliver copy a month early, they're annoyed because if you're talking about with a book, he said, you got a book. He said, if you deliver it a month early, they're annoyed because they weren't expecting it. Mm-hmm. If you deliver it on time, it's just okay because they were expecting it. If you deliver it a month late, they're annoyed because it's a month late. If you deliver it six months late, they're really annoyed because it's six months late. He said, anything after a year, they're just grateful. So he said, <laughs> never, never deliver anything less than a year late. Um, wow. And I should tell term- my editor. Wow. You- no, please don't. Uh, the editors aren't that. So, so, do you think that because um, I see you at screenings and you know and you know we're a funny old group and uh, I don't know what I don't know what that group looks like to anybody else because only, you know one of the things that your book does cover is that you only ever really see the world through your own eyes and therefore we have to start seeing it through different eyes for the world to change. What does it look like to you when you walk into a screening room and you see the lot of us? What are, <laughs> you know? What does it look like to you? Well, I mean, the thing is, I've, I mean, I've been doing this now what, 17 years as well. So You're a child. A ch- You're a child. <laughs> but to, to, me, to, be, to me, when I first walked into those rooms, it was just, I was so excited to be there that I barely paid attention <laughs> to anyone around me. I mean, look, there's there's been times when I've I've sort of been conscious of it and it tends to be... It tends to be when I go to see, you know, a, a, a sort of the intern or something, I think was one of the last rom-coms. I remember this really vividly happening, but I suddenly walk into a cinema and it's full of women and I'm like, where, where are you the rest of the time? I don't understand. Are you right. not invited? Do you not turn up? Like what, 
where where are all my people at you know um but but i i've always been kind of i'm not saying a a guy's girl because that's not really it but I've always been very comfortable with with men around and it's never so I didn't really register it that much always and it is only when something like that happens when you go to see a rom-com or you go to see a some kind of female lead and there are suddenly all these women that I suddenly realize oh yeah most of the time it's it's a whole lot of men around me and I hadn't really registered that but I mean for most of the time that I was on staff at Empire I was the only female writer on staff. Now, obviously, Liz Beardsworth, who's our fantastic um, production manager, does does some writing, and she's a very good writer, but she's not primarily employed to do that. I was the only woman primarily employed for most of that time as a writer. Um, and then we have great freelancers like Anna Smith and so on. But, you know, it's it was kind of lonely sometimes because there is a there is sometimes a bit of a boys club and there are shared cultural touchstones. And much as I love, you know, Predator, you, I have never really gotten on with Commando and that just locks me out of some discussions. <laughs> and what advice would you give to, if somebody was listening to this, um, you know, a, a, an up and coming uh, woman journalist, a woman filmmaker, having written the book, having, you know, worked for the best part of 20 years in, in film journalism and in Empire, which is the biggest film magazine in the if, in the country, if not arguably, I think one of the biggest in, in the world, presumably, isn't it? Certainly, I, I haven't, no, I haven't double checked recently, but certainly last time, I think Mark, it was when Mark was in charge, did a, did a survey, it was technically the biggest in the world because EW, of course, is not just film, it's TV and books and so on as well. Yeah. So, yeah, technically, I believe it might still be. I mean, I always remember being impressed about walking down Hollywood Boulevard and seeing Empire on sale in the book and, and thinking, this is a British magazine. What, why, you know, then that, okay, fine. So that has international reach. So what advice would you give to, you know, to somebody who's, who wants to do this, either wants to be a film critic mm. or wants to be a filmmaker, and is what advice would you give to them? I think the big thing is to kind of trust your own voice. I mean, you know, I I think I think that's something that women are not necessarily culturally conditioned to do is to speak out without kind of apologizing for it. Uh, you know, you see a lot in in young in any young journalist, but particularly in women where they will do these sample reviews and there'll be a lot of I feel like it seems like, you know, it the the impression is and and I feel like you need to be more you know, emphatic about it and, and don't apologize for your views. And, you know, this is me possibly being a bit bullshit, let's be honest. But I think my my legal background helped me see reviews as as almost an argument. You're making the case mm-hmm. that a film is good, bad, or indifferent. And that's that's your argument and that's your kind of thesis that you're 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 making. And I think that's the kind of attitude you need to go in with. You need to be pretty opinionated to stand up to the people we work with and have your opinion and say it out loud in the screening room and, you know, have the discussions that we all have. And and I think that's probably true of female filmmakers as well. You need to go in with the same possibly unearned self-confidence that all the men have. And then, you know, hopefully you earn it as you go, but you, you don't, want to apologize for yourself and you don't want to kind of limit yourself early on. It's it's back to that Amahasante thing. You know, you want to be just standing up and saying, I want to direct. This is what I'm going to do. And just kind of stick to that because people will respect you for it. Even if, you know, even if it doesn't work out, at least you've given it a go. Uh, women versus Hollywood: The Fall and Rise of Women in Film by Helen O'Hara is uh, published by uh, Robinson, and is it available now? It's out on February eighteenth. February eighteenth yes. in all good bookshops, and presumably you can get it from um, from online stores. I presume uh, not just Amazon, but places like Hive, which yes, which are much better if you believe exactly. in paying tax. Um, <laughs> 
definitely recommended read thank you so much thank for coming so on the much. podcast i look forward to seeing you at a screening whenever oh. that's possible because i mean my god i never thought i would miss screenings until i missed screenings so much yeah i cannot wait to be back in one of those small cramped smelly rooms it's going to be amazing i uh, i just i just want to sit next to somebody talking on their phone and annoying me <laughs> because it's been such a long time since that happened uh, helen uh, thanks ever so much thanks for coming on the podcast um if you've enjoyed the podcast uh please remember to subscribe tell your friends Helen, what else should we be looking at? Where should people be looking for your stuff? Well, I'm on Twitter at Helen L. O'Hara and um, I'm on the Empire podcast every week and the Empire Spoiler podcasts various other times per week, uh, which are in their own special channel. Um, and, And otherwise, I mean, I'm all over the place, really. So it'll be on Twitter. Okay, Helen O'Hara all over the place and uh, on Twitter. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, go to our Patreon page where I think you can probably watch a video of this uh, and uh, keep watching this, guys. Thank you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.